0: You have on your hand out a few songs. I'd like to start with number 73, which is familiar, I think, to most of you. But it's a privilege for us to be able to sing the same thing the angels sing. You read it in Isaiah, in the Old Testament. You read it in the Revelation, in the New Testament. What the angels sing is holy, holy, holy. Let's sing together. Holy. along fine with the punctuation that time, whether you thought of it or not, because it sort of fits with where the notes go. But there's some punctuation in the next stanza that doesn't go exactly where you think it's going to go. So I invite you to sing the punctuation. Paul says we sing with the understanding as well as with spirit. So let's see if we can get all the meaning that is here by taking the breaths where they're called for. Second stanza, please. Let's pray together, please. Father in heaven, we are grateful that you extend to us the privilege of bringing praise back to you. We pray that as we talk about worship and talk about praise, that you will enlighten us, that you will strengthen us, that you will accept what we bring to you, because we bring it to you in response, our love response, to your great love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I would like to introduce our subject by what I think is a rather interesting quotation from Marva Dawn's book, the second book she wrote on the subject of worship, and the title of the book is, A Royal Waste of Time. To worship the Lord is, in the world's eyes, a waste of time. It is indeed a royal waste of time, but a waste nonetheless. By engaging in it, we do not accomplish anything useful in our society's terms. Worship ought not to be construed in any utilitarian way. Its purpose is not to gain numbers. Am I supposed to read that again? Its purpose is not to gain numbers, nor for our churches to be seen as successful. Rather, the entire reason for our worship is that God deserves it. Moreover, it isn't even useful for earning points with God. For what we do in worship will not change one whit how God feels about us. We will still be helpless sinners caught in our endless inability to be what we should be or to make ourselves any better. And God will always still be merciful, compassionate, and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and ready to forgive us as we come to Him. Worship is a royal waste of time. But it is indeed royal, for it immerses us in the regal splendor of the cosmos. I love that phrase. Do you go to church every week to be immersed in the regal splendor of the King of the cosmos? The church's worship provides opportunities for us to enjoy God's presence in corporate ways that take us out of time and into the eternal purposes of God's kingdom. As a result, we shall be changed, but not because of anything we do. God on whom we are centered and to whom we submit will transform us by his revelation of himself. To understand worship as a royal waste of time is good for us because it frees us to enter into the poverty of Christ. We worship a triune God who chose to rescue the world he created by means of the way of humility. God sent his son into the world to empty himself in the obedience of a slave, humbling himself to suffer throughout his entire life and to die the worst of deaths on our behalf. He did not come to be solving the world's problems in any sense that the world could understand. Worship of such a God immerses us in such a way of life, empowered by a spirit who does not equip us with means of power or control, accomplishment or success, but with the ability and the humility to waste time in love of the neighbor. Where does the word worship come from? It is actually a contraction of the phrase worth-ship. Worth-ship, an acknowledgement of the rank or the status of another being. Is it ever right to attribute worthiness to other people? Are there people who are worthy of your respect? I'm interested in Luke 10, verse 7, the Lord says, The laborer is worthy of his hire. Ah, apparently there is some sense, at least, in which worthiness can be attributed to human beings. That really should be a caution to those of us who like to think the world owes us a living. If the laborer is worthy of his hire, he um, sort of ought to be sure he's uh, under obligation to give back that which he is being paid for. Just because Southern has promised to X many dollars on your account, if you work at grounds or service or the calf. You have a responsibility to see that SAU gets a fair benefit for the worth they are attributing to your time. Are persons worthy who have money? There are some in our community who have money. Fair bit. Good friend of mine who gave a million and a half dollars to help build a wellness center over here. I haven't got a million and a half dollars. Does that make him worthy in any sense? We kind of think so. But if his money was honestly come by and is used morally and responsibly, I think yes. Scholarship? Are there people who are worthy because of their scholarship? Yes. If they can use it in areas of study which will make mankind's condition better. Or his understanding of himself better. Or his understanding of his God better. Political office? Are people in political office worthy? That's a bad question to ask in 2008, isn't it? I think, yes, provided they know how to use political office intelligently and responsibly and morally. Spiritual vigor. There are people who are spiritually alive, spiritually vital, who have much to offer. And, yes, it is worth recognizing their accomplishments and their contributions. And I'm interested also in the centurion who built the Jews' synagogue in Capernaum. He was in need one time because his trusted slave was sick and about to die. And the elders of the Jews came to Jesus and they said, what? Help this man. He is worthy. He's worthy because he loves our nation. He's worthy because he built us a synagogue. What did the centurion say when Jesus started off to his house? Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof. There are different views of worthiness. Who else in one of Jesus' parables said he was unworthy? The prodigal son. The prodigal son had broken his father's heart. He had deprived his father of years of good service. He had wasted buku bucks in degenerate living. He knew that was not the way his father's son ought to live. He knew that was not the way any father's son ought to live. And in his honest moments of self-examination... He recognized that he had given up any right, any claim to honor or responsibility or worth. But what intrigues me always about that story is that boy never was worthy to be called his father's son. Because worthiness has nothing to do with it when you are your father's son. No matter what I do, I am my father's son. No matter what my sons do, they are my sons. Worth has nothing to do with it. Yes, he was right to feel guilt. He was right to feel shame for what he had done. But worthiness is not a factor in sonship. Either you are or you aren't. None of us are worthy to be God's children, but he claims us all. And for that, we are grateful. Is God worthy? Is God worthy of our love? Is God worthy of our trust? Is there anything God isn't worthy of? Worthy of our praise? Worthy of our service? I like it in Psalm 18, verse 3, where he says very straightforwardly, the Lord is worthy to be praised. Okay, settles that one. If we had any questions, there's a settlement there. On what basis is God worthy of our praise? Revelation 4, verse 11, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For Thou hast created All things and for thy pleasure they are and were created he is the sovereign over everything and in his sovereign greatness he has chosen to create to create you because he wanted to spend time with you because he wanted to get to know you because he wanted you to be on his short list of friends I don't know how short that short list is six and a half billion on this planet I don't know how many more there are somewhere else so we think shortlist in a way, but you are still on his short list of friends. You are important to him. <clears throat> Again, Revelation 5, verse 9, there's more. Thou art worthy to take the book and open the seals on it, because thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. Our redemption, accomplished through his humiliation and suffering, unfolds an amazing depth of reason, a basis for our homage. It reveals a worthiness that you and I could never have even dreamed up. Revelation 5, verse 12, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing, which I learned first from Handel's Messiah, and then I read it in the Bible, I think, after that. So is God worthy of more than an hour a week of my time? Or an hour and a half? Or two, even three, if I include Sabbath school. Yeah. Obviously. Of how much is he worthy? He's worthy of everything. So what is my worship? My worship is my life to him. It's the whole thing. It's all week long. And I like the way D.A. Carson puts it. Worship, he says, and this is the beginning of his definition, which is about this long. I'm not going to read the whole thing. And then he spends 30 pages elaborating on the paragraph. Worship is the proper response of all moral sentient beings to God. Worship is the proper response to God, ascribing all honor and worth to their creator God precisely because he is worthy. And then he adds two words that are intriguing. Delightfully so. I haven't run those past Job lately. And I wonder a little, sometimes, if we are always really sure that he is delightfully worthy of our praise. He is worthy, yes. Any of us who have understood the great controversy, who have a picture of how what, how things are going, we do not doubt that he is worthy. So what is my praise good for? My praise doesn't make him any more worthy, does it? Nope. It doesn't make him feel any better, does it? Not really. It certainly doesn't improve the social or economic conditions around me in any tangible way. What good is praise? He is said to be worthy of praise. He is worthy of our praise. But what is the praise good for? I like the way C.S. Lewis talks about it in his book, Reflections on the Psalms. I'm not going to read you the whole chapter. But if you have a chance to get a copy of the book, it's not a very big book. Chapter 9 is a chapter about praise. And it's intriguing reading. Here's a bit of a summary. Lewis, particularly before he was converted to be a Christian, found himself very put off by the admonitions in the Psalms to praise God, including such things as Psalm 50, verse 23, Whoso offereth praise glorifieth me. Does God's ego require such feeding that he must wheedle praise out of his subjects, said Lewis? What sort of a God is this? Can that kind of admiration give God any satisfaction at all? If begged praise makes God somehow feel better, if it fills his cup, it doesn't say much very nice about God's character. He doesn't need that kind of thing. But Lewis was not willing to be stopped there. He was a good thinker, and he decided he had to go on farther and discover something more about praise. He said there are some books that are admirable books. Well-written books, good books, that say good things, that say them well, that are challenging to the mind. There are perhaps other things besides books, paintings, gardens, scientific accomplishments, uh, compositions of music. There are things that have in themselves enough integrity, enough vision, enough technical excellence, and enough purpose that they deserve to be recognized. They're good work. Now he said not all such good works ever get the admiration they deserve. There are good works that never get read, never get looked at, get shoved off in a corner somewhere and nobody ever sees them. They may even be very poorly spoken of. Nor, he said, are all of the things that get admired worth admiring. There's some very cheap work that people happen to like and latch onto and say, oh wow, isn't that marvelous? And it really isn't very. But that respect or lack of respect for the work has nothing to do with the worth of the object itself. Either it's good work or it isn't good work. Actually, he said, works like that judge us. If we don't see the value in them, it doesn't say anything very complimentary about our perceptions, our understandings. Furthermore, he said, when I get to find a really good book, or a really good picture, or a really good whatever, the first thing I really want to do is share it with somebody. Times I remember my wife and I'd be driving back from somewhere, and all of a sudden, at evening, the the whole sky just lights up. There's, I mean, orange and pink from there to there and all the way around in front of us. And you go... (gasps) But it's a whole lot more fun to enjoy it if she's there too, enjoying it, than if it's just me driving along. Right? The sharing is part of the enjoyment. The sharing fulfills the enjoyment. It makes it bigger. It makes it richer. It makes it more worthwhile. It seems then... That my own enjoyment of something is expanded by praising it. The praising actually fulfills the process of enjoying. It enriches my experience. So why should I be offended if God wants me to praise Him? He wants me to, He wants to enrich my experience. He doesn't want me groveling in the dust. That's not what praise is. He's giving me a chance to extend, enhance, complete, My understanding of how great he is by praising it, by sharing it with other people around me here on this earth. And indeed, as we said before about other objects that are worthy, that kind of judge us, my attitude toward this great and ultimately worthy God actually judges me if I can't get my mind around, if I can't bring myself to accept and understand how incredibly great He is, how much His merit exceeds mine, that doesn't say anything about how adequate He is. It says something about how adequate I am. It's my understanding that at the end of time, all of redeemed creation and all the rest of creation that never needed redeeming, all of creation together, is going to get down on their knees and ascribe ultimate worthiness to the Lamb who made himself of no reputation in order to save me. Now, if I can't figure that out and get part of the the scene, it makes me look pretty stupid, doesn't it? Wow. In the same way, Lewis quotes from the Scotch Catechism. The Scotch Catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him. Forever. We've talked about the glorify from time to time. We don't often talk about the enjoy. But Lewis says we shall then know that these are the same thing. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. True praise calls for something of effort on our part. If the finest compliment I know how to pay... To anything. Maybe I find a a well-written essay or a really nice sculpture somewhere. Or I'm moved by the singing of the choir. Or I get to see Half Dome out there in Yosemite. If the best, biggest, most wonderful thing I know how to say is, Hey, way cool, man. (laughs) It's not very inspired, somehow. That's not really very high praise. The ancient Jews were past masters at the art of praise. And you and I read their writings and we think, Well, that's kind of overblown. Gets a little carried away, doesn't it? But I'm willing to believe they were sincere, and I'm willing to believe they said what they understood, and they praised him in ways that make us sound sometimes a little bit insipid. Here's a quote from the Kaddish, standard Jewish liturgy. Magnified and sanctified be his great name in the world which he created according to his will. And may he establish his kingdom during your life and during your days, and during the life of all the house of Israel speedily and in the near future. Blessed, praised, and glorified, exalted, extolled, and honored, adored, and lauded be the name of the Holy One, blessed be He, beyond all blessings and hymns, praises and songs that are uttered in the world. That beats, hey, way cool, man, doesn't it? Somehow? That's a little deeper. How long has it been since any of us expressed ourselves about God in terms like that? Well, then I get to another question. Worship is God-centered because God is worthy of our worship, worthy of our praise, worthy of being recognized. If all of worship is God-centered, what makes us think that God has any interest in having music in our corporate worship times? We don't particularly have art there, most of the time, most churches. We don't particularly have literature there, except for a really good sermon, we hope, regularly. Okay, And a little scripture reading. The other arts don't generally intrude. Why do we expect somehow that music should be part of worship? Does the fact that worship is a royal waste of time, a royal waste of time, justify adding on the trappings of royalty, such as high culture or folk culture, good dining, company manners, special dress, all the things that we kind of think are supposed to go along with our corporate worship? Well, I got to wondering what Scripture tells us about worship and music. Do you know where the first appearance of the word worship is in the Bible? I don't expect you to. I didn't either. I had to go look it up. But I found that the first mention of the word worship in the Bible is in one of the most puzzling, difficult, and heart-rending passages in all of Scripture. Abraham had been traveling for three days with his teenage son and a group of servants, And they came to a point where God said, There's the mountain right over there. And Abraham said now to the servants who were with him, You stay here. I and the lad will go yonder and what? And worship. And come again to you. That's the first time I find the word worship in the Bible. And so I couldn't help wondering how much music was involved in that story. Methinks not much. I don't think Abraham and Isaac went forward singing at that point. I really don't. I don't think they had sung anything since they left the home tents behind three days earlier. They may have come back singing. I'm willing to allow that, but I don't have any record of it. None of the next dozen or more uses of the word worship say anything whatever about music. Nothing. So apparently it's not unnecessary. Adjunct, although we seem to think it's pretty much appropriate. What did Abraham and Isaac's worship consist of? Submission, obedience, and sacrifice. Well, then I wondered, where is the first use of the word singing in the Bible? It comes even later, not until you get to Exodus chapter 15. And in Exodus chapter 15, we find singing as part of a great national celebration over the deliverance at the Red Sea. Now, there was undoubtedly a spiritual element in that festival, but it was still primarily a great relief. It was a great secular relief that they were still alive. Yes, and that Egypt now was no longer a threat to them. They had been delivered. They didn't have to worry about whether they would be carried back into captivity. It was not until quite a few years after that that we find the functions of worship and music combined. Actually, not until we get to David, the shepherd, warrior, musician, king, remarkable man. And we find during his reign that there was a lot of worship and music combined at the temple. Then I got to thinking. David's reign took place over the 1,000 B.C. year mark. In other words, roughly 1,000 years before Christ. That is to say, just basically 3,000 years ago now. Which means if we buy the 6,000 year age of the earth, for the first half, of man's existence, we don't know anything about music and worship combined. Don't know a whole lot about worship. We know some. So why are we so sure that music even belongs as part of our corporate worship? What do we as a people have as a theology of music? Have you ever read a theology of music? Adventist or otherwise? I haven't. I have looked. I have looked, as a matter of fact, I looked at a couple of systematic theologies and music isn't even in the index. No reference to music in the theologies. I think there are reasons. Should we have a theology of worship? Should we have a theology of music? Should it be a biblical theology? Where would you start to create a theology of music? I will tell you where I would start, and it's in a verse that you haven't read ever. Well, yeah, if you've read all the way through the Bible, you've read it sometime. But you haven't read it for a long time. It's in Zephaniah. Of all the places to start one's doctrinal study Zephaniah 3:16 and 17 In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem do not fear Zion let not your hands be weak the Lord your God is in your midst the mighty one will save you he will rejoice over you with gladness he will quiet you in his love he will rejoice over you with singing Now, I'm a musician. I'm not a theologian. So I didn't know whether there was something about the Hebrew that I needed to know. So I went to one of my worthy colleagues in the school of religion. And I said, is there something funny about the way this is translated that means it it, it really maybe doesn't mean exactly that? No, I said, that verse is exactly what it means. I've looked that one up. I've studied it. He says, "It's, it's, it's unique in all of scripture, but it's exactly what it says. He will rejoice over you with singing. So what moves God to sing? his love for us. Love, a great transcendental love, a love which was big enough to devise a way to save fallen man. A love which not only could figure out how, but once he saw, as Ellen White says, the only way infinite wisdom could devise to save fallen man, once he saw it, he was willing to go through it, he was willing to invest it, he saw it as a worthwhile thing to do, to to endure that inexpressible humiliation to save one soul. One soul. Yours. Mine. The whole story is for your soul. God sings because he's happy. God sings because he rejoices. Hebrews 12.2 Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He sings in tender triumph over the one sheep found, restored to the cosmic flock of the universe. What does he sing? Ha! Now I wish I knew. I don't know what God sings. I have no idea what it sounds like. I'd love to experience it. I hope to get there someday. But I have to believe that somehow it is a song worthy of God's heart. Worthy of God's heart. He's invested too much in my salvation to treat it lightly. I sometimes... I'm careless enough to. He does not treat my salvation lightly, casually, cheaply. My salvation is important to him. It matters. And must not the immensity of that love which moves him to sing about me, shouldn't that draw out of me some kind of a response? At least a feeble response? Hopefully a vital, glowing, vivid, magnificent response. God is an excellent creator. Everything he did, he said he did well. And he should know. Yeah? And if God has produced an excellent world, which he has, which even after 6,000 years of groaning and travailing under the curse of sin, still has left us magnificent things to look at, if he could make a world like that, doesn't his worship deserve the highest level of excellence we know how to give? What do you think moved David to write an astonishing meditation on the law of God in the form of eight-entry acrostics, on all 22 letters of the hebrew alphabet. You do know that's what Psalm 119 is. Fascinating. Marvelous. Nobody told him he had to do that. He did it because he was moved by what he saw. Jeremiah did the same thing half a dozen times over in the lamentations. The same kind of poetic impulse. Think about it, guys. You really want to show yourself a worthy gentleman to impress and please the young lady. You going to take her to McDonald's? Are you going to take her to the Imperial Garden? Or the loft? Or some such place? If you want to really show that she matters to you, you are going to bring her a corsage of dandelions you grubbed up out of the lawn? Or are you going to get some roses? What do you think? If God really cares about us, is he content to sing a lowest common denominator sort of jingle over us? Or is he going to fashion a really elegant, well-crafted air? And on our part, If we have an appreciation of who God is and what he has done and how immense his love is, are we going to just mumble some off-the-cuff ditty when we come to praise? Or can we raise our sights and bring him praise of the highest quality we can imagine? Maybe, oh boy, I have to be careful how many toes I step on here. Maybe even investing in learning how to use our voices properly. Music Students in my Music in the Christian Church class often tell me, I don't sing. I like to sing, but people say I sound awful. People laugh at me when I sing. You know what? There is nobody whose voice cannot be improved enough to become a comfortable companion in worship. And maybe that investment is something we should consider. I think there's another reason why music belongs in worship. We are creatures made in the image of God. And God is passionately involved in living life to the fullest. His life to the fullest. He doesn't live on the edge. He lives in the middle of. He lives richly. He lives fully. And I think it's logical that he would enjoy seeing us get all we can out of our lives also. And there is arguably no activity that the human being engages in that involves more of the being than music. Evidence? No problem. Daniel Levitin has written a very interesting book. It's in the appendix, uh, the, uh, the bibliography there, in your handout. And by the way, that's one of the nicest things, I think, about a gathering of this sort. That is what you can take home with you and have a little time afterward to think about. So I've given you a stack of books, and I've tried to tell you a little bit about each one so you don't spend your money for something that wasn't what you wanted after all. And Levitin's book there, in that handout, in that uh, bibliography, is entitled, This is Your Brain on Music. And he describes what goes on in your head when you are into music. I'm going to read you one paragraph. Are you ready? Listening to music starts with subcortical structures, the cochlear nuclei, the brainstem, and the cerebellum. Then moves up to auditory cortices on both sides of the brain, Trying to follow along with music that you know, or at least in a style you're familiar with, recruits additional regions of the brain, including the hippocampus, which is the memory center, and subsections of the frontal lobe, particularly a region called the inferior frontal cortex, which is in the lowest parts of the frontal lobe, that is, closer to your chin than to the top of your head. Brain down here? Well, somewhere down. Down a ways, anyway. Okay. Tapping along with music, either actually or just in your mind, involves the cerebellum's timing circuits. Performing music, regardless of what instrument you play or whether you sing or conduct, involves the frontal lobes again for planning your behavior, the motor cortex in the posterior part of the frontal lobe, just underneath the top of your head, and the sensory cortex, which provides tactile feedback that you did press the right key on your instrument or move your baton where you thought you did. Reading music involves the visual cortex in the back of your head in the occipital lobe, Listening to or recalling lyrics involves language centers, including Broca's and Wernicke's area, as well as other language centers in the temporal and frontal lobes. It's the whole thing, folks. It all lights up. My wife and I had a chance to be at a symposium in Chicago uh, back in the early 90s called Music and the Brain. And they showed us PET scans of people doing various things. PET scan of somebody playing chess. Well, there's a little corner back here in the problem-solving area that's got lots of blood flow right at that point. Somebody reading a book, well, okay, so there's something over here in the word area. Somebody listening to speech, all right, well, something over here in the Wernicke's area. Somebody doing music, the whole thing glows. And he hasn't yet mentioned the social interactions that are included in being part of the choir or the band or the string quartet. And neither, as he admits on the following page, has he even started talking about the emotions that we respond to music with. That adds in the cerebellar vermis and the amygdala. Music sums up practically everything the brain knows how to do and puts it all together. It is also interesting, if you stop and think through it, that singing is the only thing in the worship service that we really, truly all do together or can do together. Offering plate comes by. I stick mine in. I hope you don't notice. I'm not even supposed to let my left hand know what the right hand does, right? Okay, That's private business. The sermon? Yeah, you hear it with your ears. We all listen together. But uh, <clears throat> put your hands in your pockets. Have you ever had your mind wander during the sermon? Uh, the prayer. Yes, we hope we're all praying together. I found myself sometimes praying my prayer while they're praying that prayer. I, am I right? Am I wrong? You know, okay. But we can sing together. And when we sing together, we become one body in a way that we do not at any other time in the service. Okay, I've belabored that one long enough. Not surprisingly, we all tend to want to do things the easy way. This is something I have observed particularly in my children coming up. I'm used to grabbing a piece of luggage and heisting it going on my way. Yeah, so I don't even notice it has wheels on it. So my kids grab the wheels and roll it along behind, which is a whole lot less work. I remember changing tire once. My friend Wayne Jansen let me use the lift over at the shop to change my tires. I got the car up just far enough so the tire was off the ground and bent over and started to work. He said, hey, bring it up where it's easy. We all should do things the easy way, right? But worship, I suggest, is an enterprise where doing it the easy way dilutes it. Doing it the easy way cheapens it. Doing worship the easy way undermines what it's worth. There's an interesting volume entitled Exit Interviews. I didn't put that one on the bibliography, I think. William Hendricks talked with 15 or 16 young people who had simply slipped out the back door of Christianity. Not Adventism specifically, Christianity in general. And once he had analyzed the data from the interviews which he conducted, one very startling conclusion came to him. Not one. Not one of those with whom he spoke left the church because worship was too deep. Not one. Some had departed because of inadequate intellectual challenge. Some had departed because of musical ineptness in the service. Some had departed because of insufficient attention to developing character or not being able to develop a sense of community or whatever. But no matter how loudly you may like to complain about having to go to convocation, and having to go to Vespers, and having to go to church, the worst thing is to get there and find there isn't enough intellectual meat on the platter to make it worth your time. Right? If they're going to make you go, at least give me something worth going for. And that's exactly the truth with worship. If it's really important that we be there, let's make it challenging and rewarding enough to justify it. And I believe the same thing is true of our music. If we are going to have music in worship, let's don't make it the cheapest thing we can come up with. Let's don't make it the easy way out. Let's stimulate our minds and raise our sights spiritually and culturally also. Bernice Johnson Reagan is one of the founders of a gospel singing group called Sweet Honey in the Rock. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of them. But she writes about her own spiritual coming of age, and she tells it this way. She says, I became a member of the church and a Christian. After that, I didn't act the same. I was less frivolous in the way I conducted myself. I can also remember thinking that if I was really a Christian, I had to learn to sing more difficult songs. And she points out a truly significant distinction in these words. She said it was good news to lay down the world and shoulder the cross of Jesus. It's not a good time. But it's good news. If we are in it for a good time, the church, in the closing years of the great controversy, is not the place to look for it. The good time isn't there. But if we're looking for good news, there's nothing else worth checking out. That's where the good news is. What do we bring to God when we come to worship? What can we bring? Can we bring him money to make him richer? He who said, if I was hungry, I wouldn't bother to tell you. But he still says, bring an offering and come. For whose sake do we bring the offering? His sake? Our sake. Our sake. We need to be reminded the tribute is due to him. Can we bring him our remarkable insights and understandings? Ellen White says, every ray of truth and light and true scientific knowledge originated with him. And he gives to all men liberally and without scolding. On the other hand, I have always loved this quote from Blaise Pascal, the French philosopher, who said, God may not need my intelligence, but he certainly does not need my ignorance. (laughs) God may not need my intelligence, but he certainly does not need my ignorance. Can we bring beauties to God? He fashions the grass of the field which is today, and tomorrow is cast into the oven with a splendor that he said beats anything Solomon ever knew. I can't bring him any new beauty. He knows beauty on a much broader and wider and greater scale than I do. But it is not appropriate, therefore, to bring him some random words linked up with some careless tune and say, that's my praise. No, all we can really bring him, as Marvidon said, is our puny, miserable sinfulness, And from Him we can receive restoration and forgiveness and acceptance and exaltation and help and compassion and graciousness. And yet, as we come to worship, and I'm speaking specifically of our corporate worship, Sabbath morning, we do bring Him something. What we bring Him is what we have made of ourselves in the seven days between. We bring Him what we have made of ourselves. If we have made ourselves more calloused by playing Grand Theft Auto for several hours during the week, that increasingly calloused self is what we bring to worship. If we have cheapened our grasp of how great he is by carelessly profaning his name all week long, we bring him less sensitivity to the great perfection which his name represents. If we have dulled our senses by too little sleep and too little exercise and too much food and too much noise blasting in our earbuds, we bring him an offering that is blemished by our own sloppy ways and disrespect of what he made. How we perceive our relation to him will be seen. And I underscored that in my notes. How we perceive our relation to him will be seen by the way we cooperate or do not cooperate with his efforts to restore us And his efforts to restore us are diligent and earnest and ongoing all the time. He wants us to be whole. He wants us to be physically, mentally, morally, spiritually, and socially whole beings. And our attitude toward worship will reveal what we have become, what we have made of ourselves in between. So what shall we sing when we come into his presence with thanksgiving and make a joyful noise unto him with psalms of praise? Psalm 95, 2. I submit that for many years, hymns have served as the voice of the worshiping congregation. And the same excellence, the same value which made them appropriate for expressing God's worship in the past, isn't lost today. Some like to complain that the language is outdated and outmoded. Yeah, some of it is. And in some hymn books, they carefully change a few words here and there to make it feel more contemporary. That's a taste matter. I'm not going to get caught up in that one. But I would like to suggest that often, what the complainer really means is, the hymn writer is using words I don't know. Well, Merry Christmas! Your teacher ought to do some of that too. So, what do you do when you find a word you don't know? Look it up. Find out what it means. Stretch your mind. The more words you have in your vocabulary, the greater your capacity to think. Adam Lengel says, "We think because we have words." not the other way around. We think based on our words. And those of us who want to use just the fewest words we can get by with, cheat ourselves. It can be a good thing to stretch our minds, introduce new concepts, new understandings, bigger things than our common words sometimes give us. Madeline Engel also says that vocabulary always shrinks in a time of war. In the 20th century, my good people, was a time of war. First World War, Second World War, Korean War, Vietnam War, Desert Storm. War the whole century long, basically. And our vocabulary has suffered because of it. And we do well to look back to earlier ages and to use words that were good words then and are still good words now if we give them a chance. We've already sung number 73, which I thought we were going to sing at this point. So we're going to use the next one that in your handout it should be number 36. Oh, thou in whose presence. And I want you to notice as we sing this how many word pictures there are. There are metaphors in this. I should ask you if there are any similes to see if you all know the difference. What's the difference between a metaphor and a simile? A simile uses like or as. The metaphor just says it's this or it's that or it's whatever else. There's some marvelous metaphors, some beautiful word pictures to describe the beauties and the glories of the Lord our King. Number 36, Joseph Swain's beautiful hymn.
1: <clears throat> o Thou, in whose presence my soul
0: picture. What a picture of the worthiness of our God. One more, one more, and then we're going to quit. This is number 21. Again, you'll find it there in your handout. He talks, the poet in this case talks about many of the specific attributes which only apply to the great God who made everything, who sustains everything, who loves everything he has made, and who has redeemed us all. (sniffs) mm <sniffs>
1: Silent as light for wanting all.
0: Hold phone, hold the phone. I know, that punctuation's in a funny place. But we break up the sentence if we take a breath after above. Most of you have lungs that could make it two more syllables. You really could. Thy clouds. Which are, and I promise I'll give you room for a breath after clouds. Alright? We're going to the second stanza once more, please. Here we go.
1: Unresting un. Unhing-
0: the spirit do you also sing with the understanding it's so much fun third stanza life yeah. all We are grateful that you think enough of us to give us a chance to enjoy you. And we are grateful to know that the enjoyment of our God is wrapped up in the way we express our praise. We are grateful for good means of praise, for challenges to our minds, to our thinking, to our words, challenges to our lives. We thank you for accepting us and for the great gift that was given to make it possible for us to be reconciled to our God. We pray your blessing on all that transpires this day, on our worship, on the way we treat our bodies and our minds between worship sessions. May we indeed respond intelligently to the great God who made us, and may our lives show your praise as well as sing it in Jesus' name. Amen.